The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm going to check in with Kevin Brand. Kevin's a defense policy analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence. I don't know Kevin, and I thought I knew everyone at BI. That's because he just recently joined. He's a 29-year Navy veteran. Whoa. I mean, what's up with that? Kevin, 29 years? Thank you for your service. Yeah, thank, oh, thank you for you. your service, but 29 years? I mean, you got you had to be the old guy, right? Uh, yeah, I couldn't figure out what I was going to do when I grew up. <laughs> Kevin, you're, you've are you been in this defense game a long time, in the Navy, um, with experience in security strategy. You've got so much experience. When you look back on this last year in Ukraine, what are some of your key takeaways? Yeah, I tell you, it's it's really sad. You know, here we are, one year into the the conflict, and uh, this is a you know a war of choice by by Mr. Putin, uh, just to satisfy his own ego, kind of restore the borders of what he sees as the former Soviet empire, and he's caused you know untold suffering on the country of Ukraine. We're talking about one trillion dollars in potential. Uh, infrastructure repairs that have to be done to the country, over 8 million refugees, primarily in Poland and Germany, 5 million displaced persons, uh, you know, hundreds 30, of thousands of deaths. Yeah, hundreds of thousands of deaths on both sides, uh, all for really a war of choice, completely unnecessary, just tragic. But I, my, my question, Kevin, is um, who could possibly see an end to this? I, I've seen I've read so many stories over the past few days about how this war is going to end, what it's going to take for this war to end. And I just can't imagine um, one year into it, people are willing to write that. We were in Vietnam for at least seven or eight years, right? Right. Uh, yeah. We were in Afghanistan for 13 years. Now, they're different. They're all different situations. But Russia was in Afghanistan for nine years during their conflict. Why would anybody think, especially with Vladimir Putin, who acts to, you know, somewhere between um, you know, a megalomaniac dictator and a, and a cornered animal, why would anyone think he has any reason to get out other than total loss for him? Yeah, I think that's the difficulty here. I mean, this is, this is definitely a choice by Putin to have invaded Ukraine. I think there's some difficulty associated with the U.S. geopolitical position and that of our Western allies that we didn't really be more forceful in 2014 during the annexation of Crimea. I think that set a precedent. Unfortunately, the precedent here that is most important and what I think is most important for the international community is upholding this standard that we're not going to allow countries to forcibly change borders, to force, to force their will on others by using military force. That's an international standard I think has galvanized Europe. I think it's very positive to see NATO coming together, the, you know, Finland and Sweden about ready to join NATO, Turkey willing to re-enter re talks. That's positive. But as far as what convinces Putin to abandon this? He has to fundamentally be defeated on the battlefield, first and foremost. Ukraine I was thinking to, he needs to be defeated personally. I, I can't imagine that he backs away from this until he's thrown out of office or uh, dies. 
Yeah, I, I think this is going to be very difficult. Uh, if you look at Mr. Putin, he seems to have secured his power base. He's definitely an oligarch. You know, he's a dictator, authoritarian government. Uh, absent some sort of popular revolt, uh, it's going to be very difficult to remove him from power. So the only way to stop this invasion is Mr. Putin's internal calculation has to be that he can no longer achieve his results. And that means the West really has to provide for Ukrainians defense and Ukraine must secure their borders and repel the Russian from their territorial Kevin, uh, land space. What what role do you think China should play, will play, could play in the coming year? Yeah, that's a great question. I, this is, you know, this is a very important international political contest. Yep. We have authoritarian regimes out there, revisionist powers who are wanting to use force to achieve their national will. The West, the international community has to stand up to that. When you look at China, Iran, uh, to a lesser extent, North Korea, uh, the West has to galvanize international support to punish those sort of behaviors. I think it's positive development that China has so far not provided ostensibly lethal aid, but it would be, it would be one of the things I think we need to see is China step up to the plate and be a little bit more proactive besides just offering a peace plan, uh, be more proactive in pushing back against Russia, both in the United Nations Security Council and sort of internationally public diplomacy peace-wise. Hey, Kevin, we also have uh, Maria Tadeo joining us. She's uh, Bloomberg Television. She is reporting today. Live from Kiev. Let's Live from in. Kiev. Let's bring Maria in. Maria, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I know you've spent a lot of time in Kiev, in Poland, on trains, interacting with Ukrainians. What's the mood today one year in? What is their level of resolve? Yeah, no, it doesn't sound. Well, first of all, your microphone's off. Oh, okay, thank you. I'll push um, it and second button. of all, uh, we're, we're we don't have Maria now. She is in the capital, and it is uh, Fortress City. So yes. um, it doesn't. Uh, it, 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 I don't think that we have any kind of war zone issues, but we do have your typical global telecommunications problems. Uh, uh, producer Eric Molo says we got her back. Maria, uh, you have been after I think a seventeen-hour wow. train ride reporting live from the capital of Ukraine, Kiev, uh, and Paul was wondering, you know, the people that you talk to on the train, the people that you talk to in the streets, what's, what's their feeling one year in? Yes, and, and listen, I have to apologize because I know the lines are dropping, but really this, this is also part of it, is, is, is the reality of it. And we're not even using our real phones uh, here pretty much for, for security, essentially. Uh, I think to me, what is just incredible of the story is, you know, you get on this train from Poland and then you're making your way to Ukraine. And then at one point uh, I catch myself thinking, wow, it's 1 a.m. in the morning. This train is full. You know, you're in this uh, little carriage with uh, four other people. And then it just hits you. You know, we're all women here. And, and then at that point you ask, why are you going there to this woman and, and, and what's your situation? And then they tell you, well, I'm either going to see a relative or I'm going back to my husband or I have to come to Poland because there is no visa process in Ukraine. And that's when it really hits you. The men cannot leave. It's the women that are going in and out mm. to their country. Uh, a lot of these well, husbands are, are fighting or they expect that they will be called uh, to some extent 
to fight uh, this year, particularly in the spring, and then you get to Ukraine and, and the reality hits you. You see uh, the first men, actually, that you interact for many hours are all dressed in military gear. They ask uh, for your papers, your passports, they let you in, and then, of course, from that point on, you start to see the scenery. As you enter Kiev, it's, it's Bucha. We don't know the, the massacre that happened there. Then you go into Irpin, which is just outside, and there was active fighting there, and that's when you really realize the Russians were just so close uh, to Kiev then you see the airports that they had to blow up. Remember, the initial plan from the Russians was to take hold of the airports and helicopter people from Belarus into uh, Ukraine. And that's the reality of the war. I think yesterday for us, on top of the reality check, it, you see it firsthand. And you're on this train, and the train next to you, it's ready to send the weapons. And this is a train that's really next to you as you're making your way into Ukraine for 17 hours. The airspace obviously shut now for a year because of the missile strikes. I think for today, uh, we heard already from President Zelensky, who was giving out medals in the morning to the army, again, repeating the reason why we're still standing a year later is because of our army, and they have paid in blood. Uh, so that I'm here, Zelensky's here, mm. the press, uh, we're all here reporting this because of the huge fight that the army has put up with a lot of weapons from the West, sure, but in reality it's the soldiers that are dying there. And the one thing that also really caught my eye is when you look at Ukrainian TV, the way they present this is not the one-year mark. It's not the one-year anniversary. What they say is one year now closer to victory. Uh, all right, Maria Tadeo reporting live from Kiev. Uh, I know you spoke with the mayor this morning, Vitaly Klitschko, so I want to talk uh, to you about that later if we can get you back on the program. Uh, and then Kevin Brandt, he is defense policy analyst of Bloomberg Intelligence. We're going to get you back as well because this is obviously such an important issue geopolitically, and we definitely want to um, – get all caught up on the one-year anniversary uh, of this tragic war. How do we keep supplying Ukraine? It seems like they're just going through munitions, as you would expect. Do we and the West have the capability to continue to replenish their bullets and shells and tanks and all that kind of stuff? Well, I think for the short term, absolutely. You know, we really don't have a choice in, the, in this matter. It's sort of an existential threat to Ukraine. Uh, and really the only thing that's bolstering their defense forces is the Western weapons that are flowing in, uh, including some of the you know, former Soviet bloc countries that still have some Eastern uh, former Soviet sort of supplied weapons that we're able to do to kind of keep them in the game. But that's the critical thing as we look forward at this. Uh, you know, barring a return of the Russian advance or that they, if they're able to get better and move into territory, what we really have to prepare for is the Ukrainian counteroffensive, which is probably going to kick off later this spring. And so the the importance of getting those arms and weapons into Ukraine and get them trained up, ready to use them before that spring offensive kicks off is kind of the number one problem right now. I, I, I imagine that the U.S. military just has amazing capabilities in terms of supply chain management. Um, and we have the tools to get everything there, right? I mean, we have more aircraft carriers than anybody else, than everybody else in the world combined, I believe. So, um, is that what's happening right now? Are, are we utilizing the Army and the Navy to get them the gear that they need as quickly as possible? 
Well, I think you've got a combination of a couple things. Uh, so we're we're energizing the contractor base. There's lots of uh, security assistance dollars that are on contract right now to get industry to ramp up production, both to resupply the U.S. arsenal. Plus, we also have the ability to move weapons from the U.S. arsenal, these presidential drawdowns that you've heard about, uh, and move actual U.S. weapon stocks in through the supply chain and get those to Ukraine, not to mention what's already the NATO countries are providing. So there's enough arms and ammunitions to keep Ukraine supply, but we are starting to dip down into U.S. and NATO inventories. How concerned are you, Kevin, about um, – I mean, this is clearly a in, – well, in some ways, it's a proxy war between uh, Russia and NATO, Right. How concerned are you that that escalates into a, a hot war? Because I, I feel like we've been watching China, um, but it looks like this is, this could be an, an active threat that happens even even sooner. No, that's a serious concern. I think everyone is watching that closely, and there's always a risk of escalation uh, when you get in. Russia has been clearly signaling that they're unhappy with what the West is doing. Uh, but you know, I, I think the West has made its position clear. This is about the defense of Ukraine. This is about Russia's unprovoked aggression against Ukraine, the violation of territorial borders. And this is what the international community stands up for, right? Non-interference in the international affairs of others, uh, no forceful movement of borders by use of military force. And so these are core international principles that are at stake here. And the West really does need to step up. Kevin, I guess in terms of stepping up, the next big, big leap would be providing Air cover, jets. Air Force, jets, F-16s. What are the pros and cons that you think our leaders are weighing right now? And how, how do you think this will, will play out? Well, I think you hit the nail on the head earlier. There's, there's always a risk of escalation. You know, what sort of weapon systems do we bring? What is Russia's response to that? I think we've had sort of an incremental approach to this, uh, increasing arms, longer range arms, more lethal aid. I think air support is next. When you think about a Ukrainian offensive that's upcoming, uh, you really have to have a combination of infantry supported by armor, artillery, and air support, not just uh, unmanned airs and sort of reconnaissance vehicles, but you need to have tactical fighters that can provide close air support to those troops. So I think it's inevitable. The question is just a matter of time before the West commits to that. Do we always have to uh, pre-announce this stuff? Is that a part of, you know, uh, avoiding escalation? We say we're going to do it. We float that balloon and then we eventually do. Or is it possible that we give them, uh, give the Ukrainians fighter jets to use in the offensive without telling anybody and upping the element of surprise? It's possible, but I, you know, these sort of deliberations are so complex inside the National Security Council. They're, they're weighing the pros and cons. They're looking at the risk of escalation. Uh, it's very, very hard to hide these moves. So even if we didn't announce them publicly, which I think would be a mistake, but even if we didn't, Russia would clearly know that we're doing it. The information would get out. So I think it's really this deliberate process by which the NSC and the White House, the administration needs to go through, work with our NATO partners, and then determine what the best air assets to provide are. From an intelligence perspective, Kevin, how do you, th what do you believe, or how good do you think our capabilities are in that part of the world? And are we providing intelligence support for the Ukrainians? Absolutely. I think that's one of the key things that we're uh, actually providing the Ukrainians. Uh, besides the arms in Western, is that intelligence support. I mean, they they clearly know the adversary better than any of us. They're yep. on the ground. They're there. But the non-technical means that we have, the satellite sort of surveillance, the overflight capability that we have, the UAVs, we are providing 
pretty critical intelligence that helps them tactically and operationally make decisions on the ground as to where they need to defend, where Russia is massing troops, where they need to reallocate resources. And I think that's absolutely critical to Ukraine's defense. You got your master's national security policy from the uh, a, a National War College, U.S. Naval War College. Uh, how much did they talk about China then? And 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 how much of a threat do you think China is now? Because I know an Air Force general recently said uh, we could have war with them in 2025. Absolutely. So uh, China, China and Russia. I mean, China to the most part has been sort of the premier up and coming long term strategic competitor for the United States least going back 15, 20 years in military parlance. Uh, The national security establishment really focused on that more recently in the last 10 years. But absolutely, that's the up-and-coming challenge that we've got from a great power competition perspective. Hey, Kevin, we're fortunate to once again uh, have Maria Tadeo joining us uh, live from Kiev. Uh, So we want to go to her. Maria, thanks so much for, you know, dialing in. We know it's hectic there. Um, I believe you recently uh, sat down with the mayor of... Vitaly Klitschko. Yeah, the mayor of Kiev. Could you tell us just give us a little color about what you learned from your discussion. Yeah, and he was here this morning uh, with us, uh, Klitschko. Obviously, you know the two brothers uh, at this point, uh, they've become something of a popular icon here. And, and, and they have been also in a number of European countries because they speak perfect German. And they have been pretty smart, in fact, to reach out to Germany and speak in Germany and reach out to the German media because they knew that a lot of the weapons, the key to unlock the heavy weapons would be in Berlin, which also speaks to the fact that when you look overall at the Ukrainian government, and Zelensky's doing this in real time. He's doing a press conference, a lot of international media. When you look at the foreign minister who's speaking today at the United Nations, it's almost this new generation of Ukrainian politicians who get very well that they need to have a big media presence and that they need to get their message across. And this was something that for Zelensky was obvious for day one. If they wanted to really survive, they needed to make this a, a global story. And it has been now uh, for a year. Now we are seeing pictures presence uh-oh it sounds like uh the cell the cell phone uh call has dropped and as maria told us you know she and uh our producer oliver crook traveled into ukraine they had to uh, leave their actual you know personal cell phones and business cell phones at the border so they yep. took in um communication devices that are not necessarily reliable. Hopefully we can get her back. Um, But she was talking about the importance of, you know, uh, the Klitschko's have have been huge, Kevin, in in building support as well as uh, obviously Zelensky. Do you think that that support still is is, is the popular support still um, as big as it was when this war started a year ago? Has it waned at all? No, I th- you know, it's always difficult to tell, and that's always a risk that you lose popular support and backing, and that, you know, the implications go with that in a democratic, uh, you know, uh, environment is difficult in order to maintain support. But I would say, actually, what we've seen is a strengthening, a uniting of NATO and a uniting of Europe behind this and behind the international principles involved. So I, I actually look at this as a very positive sort of uh, step forward. And Kevin realistically, what do other NATO countries, what can they provide? What are they providing? How much can we as a, 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 you know, really depend upon them for for real material? 
Yeah, so I think there's two things. There's one, there's the international support, the aligning of NATO, sort of the, the getting back to basics as to what the alliance is for. And that's absolutely critical. The second thing is the stepping up in the defense budgets. Uh, the nations across the NATO are coming back to their 2% pledges. They're plussing up their defense budgets. That's great for the alliance. The third thing, though, to your point directly, is they have tons of arms and ammunition available, especially small arms, uh, that is critical for the infantry supply, uh, infantry fight. They have the ability to provide non-technical means. They have the ability to provide logistic support. They have the ability to provide humanitarian support. All that comes together, I think, and provides a very important backing for Ukraine. All right. We have Maria Tadeo back, I believe. Maria, if you're there, talk to us about the push for fighter jets. I know that um, Ukraine has been not only behind, obviously publicly, but also behind the scenes on a daily basis trying to get air support. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Matt, when you listen to the Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleva, who was just uh, before the United Nations, he says Ukraine, when this war started, had a checklist almost of the seven things that they needed, the seven type of weapons that they needed. And he says at this point we've crossed six. The red lines have been crossed repeatedly. Remember, there was major fear of tanks. And funnily enough, they're now making their way from Poland into Ukraine. And it's funny, when I was on the train, you see that in the train to Poland, to uh, Ukraine, there's another lane, huge lane, where all of this equipment is just crossing the border. And that's when it really hits you that this is real. And, and these weapons are massive. They're enormous. I think the one thing they need, as you alluded to, is the fighter jets. This is still an open debate. And Ukrainians will say the rationale for this is that they want to make a big push to get back essentially the 20% around the country that Russia right now controls in the east and going down to the south. And to do that, they argue, you need to have a position from the air that allows your soldiers to move in freely and obviously with less of confrontation with troops on the ground. And they also say the long-range missiles also do that. They provide cover and support to soldiers that are on the ground. It's very difficult to make inroads if you don't have the backup from aviation and the long-range missiles. This is an ongoing story, but they continue to push for it. And if you look at the track record, you know, Matt, I would not be surprised if they get them. Again, they had seven things they wanted. They have six for the time being. Hey, Maria, can you give us the latest uh, what you're hearing from government officials about casualties, casualty rates, uh, casualty expectations? Because we're, again, one year into this. Look, this is the biggest secret, and you understand why. For Ukrainians to put out a number of dead soldiers, to put out a, a total number of, of population dead here, we all know the number is, is, is probably great, and, and it is a big number. And this is the secrecy that goes on in every war, not just Ukraine. In any war, uh, the active government will do everything that it can to make sure that those numbers speak precisely for that effective morale. But... Uh, Understandably, we lost uh, Maria yet again, so it's just uh, kind of what we've become accustomed to in Kiev because communications there are very tenuous uh, at best. Um, it, Kevin, it was, as we just heard from Maria, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, uh, the push is to get uh, some aircraft in there, so um, you know, we'll have to see how that plays out. But we just want to thank Kevin Brand, defense policy analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, uh, joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C., and Maria Tadeo uh, on the ground in Kiev. Uh, Kiev uh, with some on-the-ground reporting. We appreciate uh, both there. And again, Matt, this one-year anniversary of the invasion by uh, Russia of Ukraine. Yeah, and it's interesting to also hear from Maria not only about travel into Kiev and the, the mood on the ground there, um, but about the push for more weaponry and the armor that she's seen Seize, yeah. rolling in. Um, 
and to hear from Kevin as well about the counteroffensive um, that we expect to come um, in the not too distant future. Uh, yep. That's what the armor is rolling in there for. And I guess the question now is how much uh, damage they can do and how quickly they can do it in order to hurt the Russian offensive and to hurt Russian morale. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Festival. market certainly saying all right this inflation is here it's a little bit hotter than we thought that means this fed's going to be uh potentially higher for longer and that's kind of what we're seeing in the market here the s&p off 1.6 percent uh, the two-year treasury again we touched 4.82 percent we're now at 4.79 percent on the two-year let's bring in somebody who does this stuff for a living alex shalov co-head of investment strategies at Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, God, we've looked back on 2022. It was ugly. I don't care where you were. Equities, fixed income, tough time, tough time to make money. Here we are in 2023, starting off a little bit pretty darn good in January. What are you telling your clients these days? I think, uh, good morning, guys. I think we're probably a little bit ahead of ourselves with where we were in January, and I think people can acknowledge that. Um, it seemed as though nothing had changed from 1231 through 131. And in the month, we had outstanding returns in stocks and bonds. So our clients were scratching their heads just like we were saying, this doesn't feel right, and we're probably a little bit ahead of ourselves. Uh, the good news is, like you said, in 2022, it was really hard to make money in stocks and bonds. But when you moved outside of traditional markets, there was a lot of opportunity and, frankly, a lot of money to be made. So where? And is that still a good trade? Yeah, the alternative space is still a trade. Uh, and when we say alternatives, we think about real estate, we think about private equity, private lending, even hedge funds made money last year. So um, look, <laughs> even hedge funds made money. <laughs> yeah. I love it when even head, even those guys made money. Remember when they were the masters of the universe? Yep. <laughs> Listen, it's weird. I'm in Los Angeles. I got a blizzard warning this morning. So the world is not normal. <laughs> we just have to acknowledge True. that. But look, you could make, if you were able to uh, take some illiquidity on, you could make a lot more money than was available in the public markets. And that continues today. When I see markets red today, what that says is there's a lot of anxiety out there. There's uncertainty. And when people want their money every single moment of the day, and you're willing to say, you know what, I don't need it tomorrow or next week or even next month, yeah, there's an interesting trade there. So where do we go here? I mean, you know, the 60-40 portfolio did not work last year. So when you talk to your clients, are you, are you, are you heavier in risk assets here? Are you saying, hey, boy, we can actually make some money in the fixed income space. You can park your money in two-year paper and get 4.8%. Where, where, where are you kind of pushing people these days or leading them? Well, it comes back to this idea of alternative investments, of having things outside of traditional stocks and bonds. Um, so, again, private equity, private debt, um, a big part of our solution, and it's worked. Um, but if somebody says, look, I, I am looking for that traditional portfolio, I need access to, my, to liquidity for spending, um, there's an interesting opportunity that exists today in municipal bonds for sure. 
Um, you know, you talked about treasuries generating more yield. I would look, because most of our clients are at the highest marginal bracket, they want that tax-free income, and it exists today in munis. Um, we saw a nice move in January, giving some back this month. But again, that's normal. And if all you're concerned about is cash flow and the yield, it's juicy today. So, Alex, in terms of the alternatives, again, um, how out there on the risk premium do you get? Are you out there buying timber for your clients, or is it more private equity, hedge fund type stuff? Uh, you could do both. I mean, I think right down the middle of the fairway, core type of cash flow centric real estate is interesting. Um, we're about to see a significant shakeup in the commercial real estate market, given what's going on in rates, and just having some dry powder there to take advantage of it. I don't think you need to do anything exotic or special to win there. I think in private equity, it's really, um, you know, we've done a good job of staying out of venture um, just because we felt like it was frothy the last couple of years. Now it's interesting. Prices have started to correct there. Um, and so I think, you, you look, you don't need to overreach to win in the private markets today. There's a lot of opportunity. In terms of what you expect from on the inflation front, what you expect from the Fed, uh, we got a hotter than expected PCE core deflator um, this morning, year over year, 4.7 percent. We were looking for 4.3 percent. And that's up from the 4.6 percent we had last month. That's even up uh, from the revised up from the 4.4 percent. Anyway, it, it just looks like inflation is not cooling down at the rate that this market expected. What does that mean the Fed has to do? Well, I think everyone's been saying this morning it's higher for longer. I don't think that's a surprise. Um, really, what, what's interesting is the narrative change from hard landing versus soft landing to now potentially no landing. I think on the, on the positive side, this is an economy that's moving. You, know, you, you can't get a restaurant reservation. You can't get a hotel reservation. You, you can't get a concert ticket. You, know, you can't get an EV. There, there's a, there still is a massive amount of demand. You can't get a and Dodge think, Challenger, <laughs> Hellcat, Red Eye, Scat yeah, Jailbreak. that's right. Go old school. That's right. V12. Um, but look, you, that, the point is people are spending. And you know, we can sit around in a restaurant waiting for a table and say, wow, this is a real recession here. I can't get a table for, you know, it's going to take me seven weeks and I can get a table at 930 on a Monday night. I mean, people are really spending, so I don't think it's reasonable for any of us to expect that inflation levels are going to come down in the near future, but they're going to trend lower over time. And look, the, the real question, I know people within Bernstein are asking this, and um, a colleague was on the, uh, your, your uh, uh, counterpart on television this morning, just talking about this idea that while it doesn't look like it's going to bend today, it will bend in the future. And, and so it's, maybe it's not the first half of the year. Maybe it's Q3 and Q4, frankly, where we start to see some relief. But as long as the economy is steaming as it, as it is, then we can get through here, again, with a no-landing scenario. It's a, it's a new idea. So do, we, do the economics team at Bernstein, have they taken the recession risk kind of off the table? No, no, no. Actually, uh, they're in our base case, which is 50% of the outcomes that we see in our forecast. We've got a, a mild recession, and then our, our bear case, another 25% likelihood, is more moderate recession. So I'd actually say um, this is new. This is new. Our, our forecast still calls base case that will be in a mild recession, but it'll be one of those recessions where you really don't know if you're in or if you're out, and then a year later they'll come back and say, oh, remember, 
Q4-22 and Q1-23, yeah, guys, we actually were in recession. So it's mm. not, not going to feel like a normal recession. It's going to be one of the weirdest recessions we'll be in. But no, the base case is still a mild recession. Alex, got a question from a, a listener writing in. And I hope you're not friends with anybody on the FOMC because that could taint <laughs> your answer. Um, so do you feel like the Fed has the guts to surprise the market with an intermediate hike or MBS sales? Or will the market front run the Fed in perpetuity? Wow. Uh, I think all of us have uh, learned a lesson around Fed guessing. Um, we're all hoping that Chair Powell uh, doesn't have the will to crush the U.S. economy <laughs> and that they, they do break early. But, but the MBS side is interesting. I mean, we, we've had the reduction in balance sheet going on in the background. Two years ago, that was a huge deal. Everyone was saying, when is it going to happen? How is it going to happen? And quietly, it has been happening. Um, and that's something that's been lost. But, but if I were to, to answer the question directly, because that's what we try to do, answer questions, um, I, I would say I think the, the Fed is, we think the Fed is likely to pause um, before inflation certainly gets to that 2% long run number. Alex, you mentioned you're in uh, Los Angeles there. Weather issues aside, and I did see some video of some snow by the Hollywood sign, which I've never seen yep. before. Uh, what's the feeling in, in the LA market or in terms of the economy, in terms of the outlook, that, that, that type of thing? Uh, it is um, much like the rest of the country. It's, it's, um, the economy is working. The parking garage and the office buildings are full. People are coming back to the office. There are not as many cranes as there are in Miami, but there's a lot of construction activity. New home sales continue to be tight. There's not a lot of inventory. Some of it's related to California and the Prop 13. But frankly, you know, there's so much home equity uh, today that didn't exist in prior periods pre-recession in the past that the housing market is quite strong, again, on that lack of inventory. So you know, California, there's been lots and lots of calls for it to be over, the story to be over, the people leaving because of taxes. Um, you know, again, back to restaurant reservations. I wish people would leave. Because <laughs> it, it, it's moving. All right, Alex. Come on, stuff. Elon. Get out of here. Get out of here. Go to, nah, go to Austin, back. Texas. He's back. Alex Chaloff, uh, co-head of investment strategies uh, at Bernstein Private Wealth Management. We have a killer panel in here I'm right now. Sit back in and the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, listeners may know that I have, with Katie Greifeld and Eric Balchunas, an ETF program. Um, wait, what day do we do that? We do that on Mondays, sometimes on Wednesdays. That's right. Mondays and Wednesdays, sometimes even Thursdays. I think it's happened in the past. But anyway, 1 p.m. in the afternoon. And uh, one of my favorite guests just joined me and Katie in the studio. Joanna Gallegos joins us. She's a co-founder of Bond Blocks, one of, I think, the really innovative uh, ETF providers that, um, I guess, appeared out of the blue last year. Not out of the blue, right, Joanna? Because you've had experience at a couple of the biggest sure. ETF firms in the world. But um, all right, so let's talk first of all about what you're seeing in the flows. Uh, in you focus your products. You have 19 ETFs focused really on the fixed income world, and nobody else does that. And then you cut them into different slices so you can see what's happening in high yield, what's happening in uh, IG. What are you seeing right now? Yeah, so I think as you would imagine, we're seeing a lot of flow and interest on the shorter end of, of the curve, especially in treasuries. So that, and also in um, short, 
uh, credit funds are taking on flow um, just in the last few weeks, but it kind of depends on what week you're talking about because in the beginning of the year, maybe if you looked back uh, 90 days, you saw a big risk on trade um, in high yield. And so some of that we saw some coming off last week. I think the markets are just trying to absorb and ETFs are always a great port of call to see where people are moving around in their risk. But we see, you know, mostly you're seeing things coming in on the shorter end and on the on the you know less risky side. What's gonna happen next week, do you think? <laughs> if it is week by week. I mean it feels like just in the last few hours we had so many hawkish data points, hawkish yeah noises coming from Fed members, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I will pull out my crystal ball and tell you right now exactly <laughs> what's going to happen next week. But we, we tend to focus on structurally what's going on in fixed income. And that's why Bond Blocks was launched, is because we felt like these markets, these modern markets, um, are going to be so different from the last 10 years and the last couple decades. And going forward, when we think about next week, this week, the beginning of January, we're just thinking about exposures for clients. And so it's it's not something we try to make a call on. We try to give people, you know, exposures into credit and exposures onto um, onto treasuries for them to play duration, um, credit risk. And I, I don't think that in, we, in talking to clients, you know, everybody's looking to make a call for the bottom or a call for this week or next week. It's just been too hard to predict. predict. It's been too volatile for people to. It really has yeah. been the, the yeah. short end. I look at X1 yeah. as the X1 and XHLF have the biggest flows, right? Which is yep. um, year to date. Uh, which is what, one year duration and six month duration? Yep, so one year duration and six month duration. They're precise duration tools. And I think that that's been really resonating with clients in this, in this market. And since it looks like the Fed, and we just were looking at some data that like the market is now pricing in more rate hikes than the Fed is um, until we hear more from them. But like going forward, clients have looked at the shorter end, but also wanting to manage and control their duration exposures very precisely. Duration's so. been your highest inflow products, really. I mean, it's Correct. way yeah. above and beyond triple yep. C or yeah. high yield. We, if I look at the top five in terms of year to date flows, it's one, six months, two years, five years, seven years. So yeah. investors are really using the duration products. They're really using the duration products and they're going on different points of the curve, which we find really interesting and they're able to reflect their views across the product set. But you know, it's just this simple notion that like, it is not 2022. Interest rates moved 425 basis points last year. The curve has moved. There's so much you can do, at least in, in the treasury market right now and people are taking advantage of it. We launched these in September and they immediately you know, started to resonate with clients, so. So obviously the duration products, really a hit. Uh, you have 19 funds, and it's really interesting, it covers a broad swath of fixed income markets. It's not just treasuries, you have yep. an emerging markets fund, which has done really well. Then you have the rating specific and the sector specific funds. Over the past year, because you've been in business for about a year now, are there any funds, any areas that have struggled in ways you didn't expect? Well, I think all the volatility last year and the correlation between equities and fixed income was just really hard for everyone to absorb. The first half of the year, you know, we saw a lot of de-risking. And then towards the fourth quarter, we saw people and our clients talking about getting back into credit. Um, and so, you know, everywhere was hard last year. What's so interesting this year is that one thing we heard consistently last year is like, I'm waiting for a certain spread 
in credit to happen before I come back in. And it didn't materialize at, you know, levels of distress that people were expecting. So, you know, think about like GFC and other times in, in the pandemic, you know, you're, you're going to upwards of a thousand basis points of spread in high yield um, or other areas in credit. And it didn't materialize. We're still like hovering around 500, uh, 500 basis points. And so we found it's interesting that clients have sort of had to realize that calling the bottom here or waiting for that distress, that that's starting to lessen and alleviate in their, in their opinion. So for 2023, I mean, granted the last few weeks have, have sort of extended the concern, we're sort of we have more information that maybe that deep recession and the fundamentals of companies are stronger than we think and there's a lot of resilience so that's one thing we think didn't go the way we thought it would last year where clients were looking for a much deeper um distress levels than appeared paul she has her crystal ball out you can ask her anything you want i want to ask her is are you seeing flows into high yield because the reason i ask is it, you know the recession call it seems to be still out there but maybe not as strong as it was a few months ago maybe but so it, I'm wondering it, it all depends on what the fed does right because it even does. if well, like we just talked to alex shaloff and yep. he says you know what you can't get a dinner reservation until seven weeks out 9 30 on a monday <laughs> there's no way you're getting an ev without paying a premium right, and i can't right. even get my dodge challenger um so this economy is hot but that just means the fed but, has yep, to keep yep. Um, raising rates and hold higher for longer. Yep. So which you've the, been calling for. The eventual recession, <laughs> I've just been listening to what, for the most part, Powell says, but the eventual recession could hit harder. Could hit harder. So, I mean, does that mean you're not seeing people wanting to get into these high yield funds that you have? Yeah, so I, I think that there's there are certain trades where we're seeing risk come back into portfolios. I think what we will see is that people will build their high yield portfolios and their credit portfolios differently than they have in the past. Maybe they don't go as broad. They, you know, a high yield, a general, um, high yield index or a high yield ETF has 10, 11% of triple C. Maybe you want to be more precise there. But we like to also focus on the, the industry sectors in high yield because they're very different. There's a right. thousand basis points of difference in the highest performing sector last year and the worst performing sector last year. That was energy and healthcare. And today, you know, we, we think when we can be really positive and construction, constructive on industries that have cash flow now and are less focused on growth than having cash flow now. So that's energy, industrials, financials. And so we just you shouldn't look at fixed income as a big swath. You should be looking for opportunities, interest sectors of, of, of fixed income, and then obviously in credit, look into industry sectors, ratings, there's lots of opportunity and differentiation. Good stuff. We could talk ETFs. That's why you guys have a show about ETFs, because you could just go deep True. into this That's topic. That's 30 minutes of Bloomberg Television. Well, currently yep. 30 minutes. Currently. Oh. TBD. I'm looking at a little bit of expansion Are here. you looking at an expansion? <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, if you're looking for it, Joanna Gallegos, uh, Gallegos, I'm sorry, co-founder of Hang on. Stories. Is it? How do your how parents do you know? say it? Gallegos. Yeah, I'm going Gallegos. Oh, okay. It's okay. That's Spanish. good. Yeah. I like that. Spanish. Yeah. Katie Greifeld. That's easy. I'm, I'm, I've been down with that for a long time. No <laughs> problems there. Uh, joining us, talking about ETFs. Great stuff. Bond Blocks uh, is the company. Uh, Joanna's a co-founder there. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. We'll talk tech. We're going to talk tech M&A. And how about 
the regulators, they're coming down on some of these big deals. It's tough to get some of these deals done. So we want to bring in Jen Ree. She covers all antitrust stuff for Bloomberg Intelligence. She is the expert here. And I want to talk about some of these bigger deals. Adobe Figma, that's a $20 billion deal. Mm -hmm. we got Microsoft and Activision. So Jen, talk to us about how the regulators, the DOJ, the Federal Trade Commission, how are they looking at big tech deals? Can you get a deal done today? You know, it's going to be a really rough year, I think, for tech and other industries, too. But, right, the focus is tech. I think the regulators today are trying to make up for lost time. I think they believe they allowed far too many transactions in the last 10 years or so to clear through, either all the way through or with some sort of a divestment to settle the case. And that what's happened is we've created these giant companies with just too much power and too much dominance today. So, you know, they're trying to make up for lost time. They're looking at these deals really carefully. They're going to be more interventionist. They're less likely to settle. And they're a lot more likely to challenge deals, even if they have a hard road in court i mean it seems like uh, they can regulators can stop deals but i wonder if they have the power that they once did um if i'm correct the last big breakup we saw was ma bell mm -hmm. and i mean we were kids then right, right? so right. 84 right? have they done anything like that since because they 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 seem to have designs on Google in that right. in that sense. Absolutely. So they almost did with Microsoft. That would have been the next occasion, right? That was in the 1990s, early 2000. They actually did get a lower court order for Microsoft to break itself apart. But then the appellate court reversed some things, put question on that remedy, and it settled, ultimately settled, and that didn't happen. So that was the last time they came close. I think the DOJ right now is really gunning for Google. You know, they have two lawsuits. There may be another. There actually could be two others that come from the DOJ. And I think they're really gunning for some sort of an order that businesses are broken off. It doesn't mean they're going to win that. You're right. It's really hard to win something like that in court. It's a drastic remedy. And sometimes there are less drastic remedies that can fix the problem. Was it very different back then? I mean, knowing that we were, you know, all playing you know, Foursquare kickball at the time. But <laughs> what, was it? Was it a different environment where government had more power than giant corporations? Because it seems like now the opposite is true. Mm -hmm. I think the treatment of antitrust laws changed over the years. Right earlier. Earlier in time, antitrust was more interventionist. The way that judges would interpret the law when cases were brought by private parties or by the government was less business friendly. But then doctrine developed over time by economists. It's sort of called the Chicago School because a lot of the thought came from the University of Chicago um, that we needed to look at efficiencies a little bit differently and that sometimes deals can be pro-competitive and efficient uh, because of what they do for those companies and products that could be brought to market, more innovation, things like that. And judges started to adopt that kind of philosophy and became much more business friendly. So over time, it became harder in court to try to prove that there's actually anti-competitive harm being caused either by a company acting on its own or by a merger. All right. So to the extent that we have a higher degree of antitrust scrutiny here, is that a function of the administration in the White House, such that in two years' time, if we get a Republican administration, it'll just Good go question. the other way again? Absolutely. Okay. I mean, and we absolutely have a push by this administration to do something about the economy, and part of that something is to bolster antitrust enforcement. It could change, absolutely. But I will say this, that there is a lot of bipartisan interest in sort of curbing the power of some of the dominant big tech platforms. So it's not necessarily a given that if the next administration is a Republican one and the antitrust leadership flips to Republicans, that this push won't continue, at least to some extent.
how much does I mean I'm a cynic when it comes to this <laughs> so I sort of have the view that these companies fund all of the congressmen and senators campaigns and as a result they have these politicians in their pockets you know I think that there's quite a bit of truth to that statement. Okay. I happen to be a cynic also, but you know, there was a lot of momentum for some new laws, antitrust laws that would have targeted and regulated big tech platforms. And there was a lot of lobbying money put in by some big companies against that. And nothing happened when a lot of people thought something would happen last year. It's interesting that they're so, um, you know, lately there's been a lot of talk about what is what do these old Supreme Court justices know about tech? And I think that's pretty fascinating, but it's interesting that, um, they would go after Microsoft for Activision. Like, what do these old judges or old regulators know about <laughs> video games? Why do they care about Call of Duty? I know it's a big number, right? But who cares if somebody has all the video games? It's funny you should say that. I spoke on a panel about this, and none of the panelists had ever played Call of Duty. <laughs> so we thought maybe we're not the best. Um, you know, Isn't there a great story, by the way, of a couple of justices? I think Breyer was one, um, and uh, Elena Kagan uh, uh, playing Call of Duty. They had someone <laughs> set up the video game and bring it down to their quarters. Yeah. And they, uh, I think... Breyer said it was disgusting and he couldn't believe anybody <laughs> liked it. And Kagan was like, I want to play more. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the thing is that the agencies are really focused on certain kinds of mergers right now. And one of them is called vertical, right? And Microsoft represents that. It's where the two companies don't necessarily compete, but they have a relationship in the supply chain, right? So Microsoft has consoles. They're sort of a distributor, so to speak, of these video games. And Activision makes the games. And that is a vertical deal. So it's one of the focuses of the agencies right now and I think this was a, a, a case where they thought this is a good one for us to sort of exercise that kind of theory of harm well you know one of the ones that's near and dear to my heart that I, I couldn't believe got approved is Live Nation and Ticketmaster <laughs> I mean you take the biggest concert promoter in the world right and you put it together with the largest ticketing organization in the world and now you know people are saying I even heard President Biden talking about you know I'm gonna do something to take care of those fees Somebody has to do something but about it. Somebody Let me tell you something, a little inside baseball, right? Paul worked on that deal, and he and the bankers that were on it said, just, you know, <laughs> we were surprised that it got, we were surprised that it got approved. So, well, you know, as um, an ex-former antitrust lawyer, when we saw the banker's documents, sometimes it really caused us to shake our head because the banker documents can cause a lot of trouble yeah. when you're trying to defend a deal. But that, could, that kind of goes to the, the issue. I mean, if you could argue they should be broken up. Right. But there's nobody really thinks they're going to be broken up. Because, again, it's, it's hard so hard. To... Now, this is a perfect example of what I was talking about at the beginning of this segment. This is part of the regret. Yep. You know, that is one of the deals that likely the DOJ today regrets that it allowed to go through, even with the consent agreement. Um, and I believe they're still investigating today, and they very well could bring a lawsuit to try to break it up. But, you know, they're facing a judge. Who knows what judge they're going to go in front, and it is a difficult path to do something like that. Is the DOJ or the FTC the harder one to uh. deal with? Interesting. Right now, I think they're really aligned. Okay. At one point, I would have said FTC, but I think now they're really aligned. They're doing things the same way. They're equally as aggressive right now. Okay. Great stuff. Uh, here's Matt. Here's another great thing about Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, we have world-class analysts to cover litigation, and so when you got a big deal and you're worried about, and you're you're invested in Microsoft and you really want to know yeah. if this deal is going to go through. Don't talk to a financial analyst like me. What do I know? <laughs> you go to Jen Ree, and she's the expert, uh, and Bloomberg Intelligence had the foresight 
to make sure that we had uh, these kinds of experts uh, available for our clients. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.